Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt, episode 64, Beloved Uncle, in which we meet one of the most important men in Hatshepsut's regime, tutor, builder, and maybe secret lover of the king. These are the life and times of Senen Mut. This episode is funded and brought to you by Hesham Abu Al-Atta, Kimberly Griffiths, and Bernard Mukenfus. Thank you so much for your support, folks. Please enjoy the show. Today's story mostly takes place between 1495 and 1485 BCE, being regnal years 1 to 10 of Tutmose III, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, and Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Senenmut's life began before 1495 and ended after 1480, so what you hear today is merely the highlights from his life, the period in which we have the most detail. Our story begins. Senenmut was born around 1515 or 1510 BCE, in a town called Iyunu Montu, or Armant. It was about 20 kilometres south of Thebes, out of the way, quiet, and not very important. The same went for Senenmut's family. He was not born into great wealth or power. His family was of minor nobility at best, not noteworthy, not even really in any of the inner circles, so to speak. Our story begins at Iyunumontu in an unknown house on an unknown day. On this day, a woman named Hat Nofret was in labour. As the midwives held her hands, reciting prayers to Hathor, Hat Nofret struggled and worked to give birth to the baby boy that was going to become one of the most powerful men in Egypt, if only she knew it. Hat Nofret named her new son Senenmut, or Senmut, there's some debate on that issue. His name is quite strange. Sen means brother, Mut means mother, so Senenmut means brother of the mother, or uncle. What an unusual name for a child. Perhaps one day I'll name my daughter Auntie, but that'd be a cause for great teasing. So why on earth would you name a child Uncle? Perhaps there was a specific family relation that Hatshepsut was trying to honour? Say her actual uncle? Who knows? It's a very weird name, and we don't encounter names like this very often in the Egyptian catalogue. Perhaps Senenmut was unique in his own time for having a name like this. We'll never know. But, at the very least, it does set him apart in the record of Egyptian officials. Senenmut had three brothers and two sisters. His father was Ramosa, a Saab or dignitary, a low-ranking member of the court. His mother was a Nebet Per, or Lady of the House. Together, they made a middle-class family, living on the periphery of power and far from the centre of authority. Their life would have been comfortable but unremarkable, and it's only in his maturity that we learn more about Senenmut and actually see him appearing in the corridors of power. Biographies of Senenmut are contradictory and argumentative, but I think I was able to boil it down to some solid essentials. For a short time in his teenage years, Senenmut served in the Egyptian army, That was pretty standard, all things considered. The general trend of royal policies for the last 60 years had been build up the army, dominate foreign lands, and focus on the martial. That meant that young men tended to go into the army for a short time in order to gain valuable experience and notice. If Senenmut was a soldier, he would have been in some kind of officer's role or a logistical capacity. Something with numbers, I'm guessing, 
because before too long, he was out of the army and in to the civil service, the bureaucracy. Senenmut's first known job was a position in the royal treasury at Thebes. How he wound up here, we do not know. Either he greased up the right official, or made friends with the right person. Either way, suddenly he, a minor noble from a minor town, was working in the corridors of the palace, the halls of the king. Something had gone right. But what did he do in the treasury? Well, at first he was probably an accountant of sorts. He would learn numbers, records, and the mathematics of a scribal education. Things like geometry and figuring out the proper construction methods for monuments. You know, stuff that might come in handy down the line, since bureaucrats tended to move about, and they didn't always count coppers. Senenmut could reasonably look forward to civil service jobs in monument building or in administration. Those were decent prospects, and there'd be moderate wealth, at least enough to support his parents and himself. If he played his cards right, he would have a comfortable middle-class career ahead of him. But then he met this dame. The sort of dame you don't forget in a hurry. A dame that would change his life forever. One day, Senenmut was in the palace of Thebes, and he met a girl. A nice girl, or at least a smart girl. A princess, actually. A princess who went by the little old name of Hatshepsut. How they met, why, is unknown. But what is known is that Senenmut's life began to change pace rapidly from that day forward. When Hatshepsut and her brother Tutmos II became the new queen and king of Egypt, Senenmut soon found himself promoted. From accountant, he found himself an Emira Sejaut, or Overseer of Precious Things. Still a middle-ranking title, but one with a lot more prestige than before. Now, he oversaw valuable items, not just foodstuffs and miscellaneous wealth. He was in charge of gold, of silver, of jewels, all the accoutrements of the Egyptian empire. It was a good job. Senenmut had profited richly already from his association with the new queen. But if there is one thing we can say about Hatshepsut definitively, it is that she understood well the value of treating your friends properly. As her husband's reign came and went, and she took over the regency of the kingdom, Senenmut found himself gaining more and more jobs in the corridors of power. Soon, he was not just an overseer of precious things, but also an overseer of the audience chamber. Essentially, managing the day-to-day -day business in the court itself. Whom Hatshepsut met, whom she spoke to, started to come within his responsibility. He must have been good at it, because pretty soon he found himself invited into the very centre of the royal palace. And this is where his story truly begins. By the time Senenmut found himself in the royal palace, he was probably in his twenties. We have no idea exactly when he was born, but the parallels between his career and that of Hatshepsut make me think that they were possibly of a comparable age. Maybe there were a few years between them, but probably no more. I have to stress that I'm speculating there, but from what we know of Hatshepsut's rise to power and that of Senenmut, it seems to feel appropriate. Being roughly in his twenties, maybe thirty, Senenmut was educated and close to powerful people, and he was now experienced in the matters of the audience chamber and the scribal class. These were qualities, perhaps, which Hatshepsut valued highly, because otherwise her next decision seems a bit baffling. You see, this civil servant, this minor noble, this bean-counter, was suddenly appointed to an extremely valuable and sought-after job. Senenmut was going to be a teacher, a tutor, 
to none other than Hatshepsut's own daughter. One day, Hatshepsut summoned Senenmut to the royal chambers. There, he met a young child, four, five years old, maybe. Her name was Neferurra, the beauties of Re, or the one who was beautiful for Ra. If she lived up to the name, we do not know. But what we do know is that from this day on, for several years, Senenmut and Neferurra were two peas in a very public pod. To be tutor to such a princess was a great honour for Senenmut, of course. He was now known throughout the court as one who had influence and standing. What a coup that was! The young boy from Iyunumontu, the minor noble of a minor town, was now one of the most respectable gentlemen in Thebes. Anyone who was anyone took some note of him. The relationship between the young princess and the older courtier was, of course, completely platonic. If anything, Senenmut took on a somewhat fatherly role towards her, and this was displayed publicly in a variety of beautiful artistic pieces. Statues of the two together show her sitting on his knee, or in his embrace, wrapped in folds of his cloak. In one statue, my personal favourite, he sits with his knees drawn up, his cloak forms a solid block of material between his knees and his chest, and out of this block pokes the tiny head of Neferura. Not even her full head. It looks like she's underwater and just, just poking up to get a breath of air. It's adorable, and I love it. As usual, find images of the statue at EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com or on our Facebook page. The texts on these statues are usually pretty generic by Egyptian standards. Senenmut praises his benefactor, Queen Hatshepsut, and talks up his own loyalty and service. For example, Senenmut the Triumphant, not found among the writings of the ancestors, the great father-tutor of the king's daughter, Neferura. Father-tutor. Now there's an interesting title. The Egyptian term is Eat Menai, which translates roughly to father-wet-nurse. It's a term adapted from older titles for, well wet nurses. If you want to play with puns, as the Egyptians did, it could also be translated as father milk cow, which is clearly excellent. Senenmut, the father milk cow. What a prestigious name. So father milk cow and young beauties of Ra were joined in educational matrimony. The young princess learned to write at her tutor's knee. She learned letters and numbers, and most importantly, religious texts, myths, prayers, stories, and hymns. All of them were to be memorized and recited endlessly, even composed in some cases. Senenmut's job, every day, was to drill these instructions into her, to hammer home a thorough grounding and expertise in the mysteries of the gods, the stories of the ancestors, and the proper worship of both. Why? Well, we'll get to that. Senenmut was riding high in the first few years of Hatshepsut's regency. As one year, and then two, passed with the queen governing in the name of young Tutmos III, Senenmut and the other courtiers found themselves growing richer, more influential in the court. Then, as Hatshepsut consolidated her authority, and began to make careful moves towards a full-on kingship, the members of the civil service and bureaucracy found themselves in very good position to advance. For Senenmut, it sure seemed like there might be no limit to his prospects. You see, being tutor to the princess Neferura, while eminently prestigious, was by no means the end of his prospects. 
Soon after taking charge of Neferura's education, around year two of Tutmose III's reign, the Queen Regent summoned Father Milk Cow to her chambers once more. Hatshepsut desired to consolidate her power, and she had decided that Senenmut would play a role in that process. So, our protagonist was now sent to Elephantine with a company of labourers. Acting as an overseer, and perhaps a surveyor, Senenmut was charged with a very special commission. He would be responsible for the quarrying of not one, but two mighty obelisks. Under his supervision, the labourers were to carve out immense obelisks for the adornment of Karnak Temple. Senenmut obeyed, and when he arrived at Elephantine, he ordered the following text to be carved. In the name of the hereditary princess, great in favour and kindness, great in love, the king's daughter of Tutmose I, the great king's wife of Tutmose II, Hatshepsut who liveth, the beloved of Satet, the mistress of Elephantine, the beloved of Knum, lord of the cataract. Here follows an inscription of honour to the divine consort, the sovereign of the entire two lands, by the wearer of the royal seal, companion, great in love, the chief steward, Senenmut. To Elephantine came the hereditary prince, the count who greatly satisfies the heart of the divine consort, Senenmut, in order to conduct the work of two great obelisks for a myriad of years. It took place according to that which was commanded. Everything was done. It took place because of the fame of her majesty. Sounds formulaic, sure, and it is. But it has told Egyptologists quite a lot. For example, it can be used to say definitively that Hatshepsut did not take over the kingship before year two. Her titles are all wrong for it to be otherwise. We can also say that Senenmut was tutor to Neferura very soon after the queen regent came to power. Finally, we can say that early on in her reign, she was beginning to plan for the possibility of taking the kingship. By ordering the construction of such monuments, such royal monuments, she was tantamount to acting in the guise of a king. To have done so on her own authority was clear indication that she had plans to expand her power and rank beyond what they already were. So Senenmut, inadvertently perhaps, though I doubt it, helped kickstart the public movement toward Hatshepsut's full membership. From year two onwards, the father milk cow was part of the propaganda program, a part of Hatshepsut's grand plan, and he played his part magnificently. The obelisks at Elephantine were not easy projects, and they took many months to quarry out. For perspective, these obelisks may have stood as high as 30 to 40 metres, about 100 feet high. They're gone now, but what little remains of them at Karnak tells us that Senenmut's work at Aswan played an important part in the grand monumental projects of Hatshepsut. That is something that I'm going to cover next episode. But let me simply say that at Elephantine, Senenmut and his men were doing important work. They were not only making great monuments for Karnak and Amun, but helping to pave the way for Hatshepsut's public ascent, her rise to full kingly power. For Senenmut, this was an obvious opportunity to prove his loyalty and skill, but also to make himself a valuable part of Hatshepsut's ongoing program. If he wanted to be indispensable, there was no better way than commissioning, constructing, and finishing these monuments on behalf of the queen. Upon his return to Thebes, to the palace, and to the princess Neferura, Senenmut was in a grand position. 
He had made great contributions to the royal household with his service already, and Hatshepsut was more than grateful. In fact, she now began to push his star even higher. First, the father milk cow had been a soldier, then he had been a clerk, an accountant, then a treasurer, then a tutor, and finally an overseer of monuments contributed to Karnak. What came next must have seemed logical to Hatshepsut, but to us it's quite a leap. First, Senenmut was given command and oversight of the Princess Neferura's estate, her agricultural domains, and the landed fields dedicated to her upbringing. But that was not all. Secondly, he was given command of the estate of Queen Hatshepsut herself. Now this, this was a commission. In effect, Senenmut became the manager and overseer of nearly all the royal estates. Overseer in abstract, anyway. He probably didn't have to do too much daily work for this. Each estate had its own manager and its own accountants. All Senenmut had to do was oversee the daily news and make sure that goods came to the palace as expected. Still, it was one of the more prestigious titles in the land, and by doing this, Senenmut had become one of the more essential cogs in the Egyptian government. But again, the peak had not yet been reached. Senenmut could and would go higher, once a few political issues had been addressed. We now come to Regnal Year 7, the moment when Hatshepsut put aside the trappings of her regency and took on the titles and image of a fully-fledged king. It had been years in the planning, considerations and cares had been taken, and all kinds of small steps had been made to prepare the road. Well, Senenmut was there pretty much from day one. He had served in the palace, he had served in the treasury, important roles to manage the economic lifeblood of the royal household. But that was only part of it, really. Equally important, his work at Aswan had helped establish the Queen's programme of monuments, and he had also done something that really helped solidify the Queen's control over important institutions. You see, Senenmut had not been tutoring Neferura idly. There was a purpose to it a larger reason for the princess to be taught reading, writing, hymns, and prayers. Day in, day out, she had been learning texts that would guide her in an important role, a role she would need to undertake before her mother made that tricky step from queen to king. Neferura was going to be a priestess. No, wait, that doesn't do it justice. Neferura was going to be THE priestess, the most important in the land. You see, since her own youth, Hatshepsut had been a priestess known as the God's Wife of Amun, essentially the High Priestess of Karnak, therefore of Thebes, and therefore of Egypt itself. It was the most important religious role that a woman could hold, and Hatshepsut had used it to leverage her own power in the days before she took the throne itself. But now that our dear Queen Hatshepsut was looking to become King Hatshepsut, she decided to relinquish that role for good. Perhaps it would be inappropriate for a king to be both monarch and God's wife. After all, a king was male, and Hatshepsut was taking great pains to present herself artistically as a traditional male ruler. No chromosomal inconsistencies here, thank you very much. Or perhaps she simply had other plans, and didn't want to be spending her days engaged in temple ritual. Either way, 
The day came when Hatshepsut took off the priestly dress and handed it over to someone else. That someone else, of course, was little Neferu-Ra. The beautiful one of Ra became the new high priestess of Amun, and her life suddenly became centred on the temple and the religious cult. Now known as the Imen Hemet Netcher, the priestess was one of the most important religious officials in the country, and an adornment to her mother's household. Neferura lived and served for her mother and her god, and the artistic remains of her life seem to reaffirm that lifestyle. She appears in painted temple scenes with her mother, Neferura always standing behind Hatshepsut, and she appears with the gods Hathor and Amun, who put their arms protectively around her shoulders. Day in, day out, this princess's life was now shaped by the twin demands of monarchy and divinity. The poor girl, it seems, never really had her own life to lead. For Sinanmut, the princess's rise to religious authority was not a problem. You might assume that she no longer needed her tutor, but that was not the case. The statues of Neferura and Sinanmut continue to portray the exact same tutor-pupil relationship even after she became God's wife. Although she was one of the most important officials in the country, she was still a child, and the tutorship continued for another year or two. Senenmut was now pretty much one of the most prominent men in the court. He was wealthy and influential. He had the ear of King Hatshepsut, the responsibility for her daughter, and the oversight of her economic dominions. In effect, he was Hatshepsut's right-hand man, her most trusted ally, and one of her most valuable tools in governing the country. Perhaps it's no surprise then that rumours began to circulate about their relationship. After all, who was this country bumpkin who'd found himself at the centre of the palace? How could a nobody like Senenmut gain such prestige and influence? There were plenty of more august and influential families around from which to draw out loyal servants. Hatshepsut had shown unusual favouritism towards her subject. The big question was, what did she have to gain from it? Like a certain empress of Russia in the 18th century, Hatshepsut found herself the subject of gossip concerning her sex life. Spurious and defamatory for sure, but interesting nonetheless. Sometime during her reign, an anonymous individual visited the valley of Deir al-Bahari. There, in a small grotto in the cliffs, he or she drew up a graffito on the stone. This graffito was unflattering to Hatshepsut. For those with delicate sensibilities, I'd suggest skipping the next 30 seconds or so. The graffito in question depicts a woman wearing a crown. She is bending over in a distinctly supplicant manner. Behind her stands a man with an erect phallus who, well, you get the idea, and I won't say any more for the sake of the general audience. Such a graffito was blatantly denigrating towards Hatshepsut. The artist was sensible enough to not put names under either the man or the woman, but the implication is pretty obvious. Somebody thought low of Hatshepsut's kingship, and decided to skewer her satirically with their pen. The result was the slanderous little image that implied that Hatshepsut was not a real man, and never could be. Her gender must never be forgotten, and it cast aspersions on her fitness to rule. This little graffito can't have been unique, although it's the only one we know. If one person dared to paint such a scene, then many more must have been imagining it. The only question is, if the female in the graffito is Hatshepsut, as it seems to be, then who is the male? Obviously, most scholars guess that this is meant to be Senenmut, 
if only because he is the most prominent male of the day, and because he held such a close relationship with the Queen in government and in private life. It's not hard to imagine a scenario where Senenmut, one day, is summoned to the Queen's private chambers, and… yeah. Political advancement by conjugal visit, you might say? The suggestion must have been whispered by many a servant or courtier. Whether they were jealous, threatened, or merely gossipy by nature, the accusation that Senenmut must have owed his success to a sexual or romantic relationship with Hatshepsut continues to show up in the historical narrative, and at this point it's sort of become a guilty until proven innocent situation. I'm not going to judge either of them, because frankly it's none of our business, but I would be very curious to see how Senenmut and Hatshepsut handled such gossip in their own time. They make no mention of it on statues or private monuments, because that was the sensible thing. Do not dignify such gossip with any response. That being said, I do have an amusing image of Hatshepsut standing before the court and saying, I did not have sexual relations with that official. Either way, it must have been a bit rankling. Senenmut had absolutely worked hard to reach the position that he found himself in. Accusations that he had done so by virtue of pleasing Hatshepsut, beyond loyal service, whether true or false, must have seemed insulting. But the courtier held his head high, and life continued on. The fact that only this one graffito survives suggests that, maybe, the rumour died out pretty quickly. Who knows? So year seven came and went, and Queen Hatshepsut became King Hatshepsut. For Senenmut, this meant even more big changes. Believe it or not, he still was not at his peak. Amazing, right? This guy had gone from strength to strength, step to step, and experienced some kind of promotion or improvement in his status pretty much every couple of years for a good decade or so. Well, he was about to go even higher, but not before a small step back. First of all, once Hatshepsut became king and began directing her government towards her new projects, she decided to reshape Senenmut's position. This meant a small, very small demotion in one respect. Senenmut was now relieved of his educational duties towards Neferura. No more tutoring. Instead, another official took over that job, and Senenmut moved on to other roles. Why? Well, the move was nothing less than a total rejig of Senenmut's role in the court. A whole host of his previous jobs were discarded, so that he could focus full-time on a new role. It almost seems like every few years, Hatshepsut found a new use for her most loyal ally and by the time she became king, she saw in him an opportunity to really solidify her power over the greatest institutions of the country. You see, Senenmut was not going into another palace job. He was moving into the religious order, to help represent the queen's interests in the temples of the country. Senenmut was going to become overseer of the estate of Amun. In other words, he was going to take over the management of the fields, vineyards, and orchards dedicated to the service of Thebes' most important god, Amun. These estates provided goods for daily offerings and sacrifices, and the supplies for festivals and celebrations. To keep that economic network functioning required talent and experience, and so Hatshepsut put Senenmut in charge. In a way, you might think of Senenmut as the new CEO of Amun Enterprises, he wasn't a priest, he was a businessman in the Egyptian sense. He was responsible for managing the estates of the temple, dedicated to the great god in a very complex job. He had to balance the budget of the temple against its needs in worship, 
to provide enough supplies that the cult functioned effectively all year round, and to see it that dozens of priests, hundreds of porters and servants were taken care of day by day. Basically, he had to run the corporation dedicated to our moon, an august position for sure, but hardly an easy one. Senenmut was now one of the most powerful men in the court. You would be forgiven for expecting that all this success, even fame, might have gone to his head. But that's not really the case. He actually seems to have been fairly restrained a lot of the time. Surprisingly, Senenmut's monuments are pretty tasteful, and he doesn't seem to have been too concerned with talking himself up. Sure, he got into a little bit of self-promotion, which I'll talk about later, but if anything, Senenmut seems to have been restrained on the matter of lavish lifestyles or public displays of awesomeness. That being said, there is one thing on which he spent a hefty sum of money, just one itsy-bitsy little thing, one tiny splurge of his finances. But it wasn't a bad thing. Far from it, it was actually something quite laudable. You see, in year seven, Senenmut's mother died. His father had already passed away some years before, and the elderly Hart Nofret now did the same. She went to her grave, having seen her son, little Senenmut born in Iunumontu, rise from soldier to clerk, chamberlain to tutor, to palace official, to none other than head of the Amun estates. Talk about a child fulfilling their parents' aspirations. Well, Senenmut was a dutiful son, and when his mother died, he arranged for her a respectful and splendid burial. She went to her grave, embalmed in linen from Hatshepsut's personal estates, and accompanied by jewels and furniture of high quality. A fine chair of cypress and ebony is the crown piece of her tomb, and it has been recovered and set up on display in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You'll find images on our website. It's a beautiful piece indeed. Such a lavish burial was all well and good, but Senenmut did not stop there. He also took the opportunity to have his father's body exhumed from its original grave. Father Ramosa had died before Senenmut reached great heights, and his burial was modest. To give his father the proper send-off, Senenmut now paid for Ramosa's body to be re-wrapped in new linens and buried alongside the body of Hunt The chapel in which they were entombed was filled with the lovely items arranged by Senenmut, and when the tomb was closed, Senenmut and his siblings could console themselves, knowing that both parents had all they could desire in the hereafter. Senenmut was now alone. His parents had passed on to the west, and he did not have a wife or concubine that we know of, nor did he have any children. Senenmut seems to have remained a bachelor his entire life. Now that he was all-powerful in the kingdom, who did he have to share this power with? Sadly, no one, and Senenmut would never correct his lack of a family. Perhaps he was too committed to his work, or too <clears throat> devoted to Hatshepsut to create a household of his own. Whatever the reason, Senenmut entered Regnal Year 9, an ostensible orphan. Sure, he had his brothers and sisters, and I'm sure they were of great comfort, but when it came to return to work, he was all on his own. Regnal Year 9 was the start of the peak of Senenmut's career. He was at the top of his administrative game, and he would never attain a position higher than the magnificent Overseer of the Estate of Amun. How could he? Unless someone made him a legal prince or vizier, 
he was essentially the most economically influential man in the kingdom. He was so noteworthy, in fact, that he even appears in person on the walls of Hatshepsut's great temple, Jesser Jesseru. He's in the background, and he doesn't do anything, but he is there, and when the queen receives the wealth of Punt, he is found on a pillar as well. Considering most of the people in this temple were either kings or gods, Senenmut was doing very well to be represented here. Serving in the highest echelons of Hatshepsut's government, our protagonist now found himself able to afford luxuries beyond any that most people could afford. The number of statues that survive of Senenmut is staggering. There are dozens of fragments and more than 30 complete examples. It may not sound like that many, but considering that there are kings who survive with as few as one or two, Senenmut was doing pretty damn well for himself. The statues that Senenmut commissioned, with Hatshepsut's permission, usually spoke of him as a loyal servant, a great advisor to the king, and a trusted companion of the court. They speak of his paternal relationship with the princess Neferura, and remind the public of his service in raising this princess to the rank of God's wife. They tell, endlessly, of how famed his name was, and how beloved he was among all of Hatshepsut's servants. In the end, they become almost tedious. You start to wonder if you'll ever get a flash of this man's personality. Who was Senenmut really? Can we tell anything about him? Fortunately, yes. Egyptologists are naturally a bit fascinated by this man, and many have devoted good effort to distilling some recognisable personality traits out of his surviving legacy. What they have isn't as much as I'd like, but it's more than many other Egyptians have left. So, what can we tell about him? For starters, let's recap what we already know about his personality and talents. We know that Senenmut was a loyal man, who buried his mother and reburied his father at great expense, in a tomb that he had originally begun for himself. So, he was a pious individual, loyal to his family, and committed to honouring the ones who gave him life. We also know that he was fiercely loyal to Hatshepsut, and to her daughter. Even after he stopped being Neferura's tutor, he continued to have his statues inscribed with the title Eat Menar, or Male Wet Nurse, to remind those who saw his monuments that he had tutored the young princess, and been a protector to her. As for his loyalty to Hatshepsut, he is one of the few officials to actually use her name and title in his own private monuments. Many simply referred to her as the king, probably to avoid embarrassment, but Senenmut put Hatshepsut's names on his own statues. While you can easily write that off as currying favour, and it probably partly is, it doesn't change the fact that he was one of the few individuals in his time to do this, to have the bravery to acknowledge Hatshepsut's rule, and to do so explicitly. So we know he was loyal. We also know that he had a bit of an artistic leaning. Senenmut left behind a pretty thorough document of his artistic and linguistic habits, on his statues and on his small monuments. Among them, Egyptologists have noticed that Senenmut liked to play with language. He would frequently switch up hieroglyphs, replacing one symbol with another that looked similar but conveyed a different tone. This tells us that he may have been a bit of a linguist, interested in his language and curious to see what he could do with it. A poet? I wouldn't go that far, since he left no poems, but certainly I'd say that Senenmut had a curious mind, and was able to put his education towards some artistic expression. The same is true of his statues. Senenmut left behind him a huge number of images, but also a huge variety. There are seated statues, standing statues, 
statues where he is engaged in work, statues where he is protecting Neferura, statues where he kneels and makes offerings, statues where he holds emblems of the gods, statues where he protects the cartouche of Hatshepsut, statues where he holds musical instruments, sistrums of Hathor, statues where he... You know what? There's a lot of them. Let's leave it at that. I've set up a whole gallery on our website and Facebook page. Feel free to check them out. The point we're getting at here is that Senenmut left behind a lot of unique and varied statuary. So much of his work is unique, in fact, that it's possible he actually invented some of these. There are styles of statues here that have not appeared before in the Egyptian record. Assuming that he didn't necessarily have access to some unknown database of statues that is now lost, it's entirely possible that he created a few on his own merits, and that people later copied them for their own monuments. If this is true, it would make Senenmut a skilled artist as well as an administrator. If nothing else, we know that he had a passion for imagery, and enjoyed finding new ways to represent himself. This all leads us to the sense that Senenmut was a man of strong personality, a larger-than-life type individual with many talents and passions. He could manage an audience chamber, oversee accounts, take charge of construction projects, and play businessman on behalf of royal estates and temple domains. He was loyal to family and to patron. He cared for the young princess Neferura, and was proud of his connection with her. Finally, he innovated, creating new ways to display himself in statuary, and to produce high-quality images that both proclaimed his magnificence, but also gave the proper respect publicly to his patron Hatshepsut. That was something many of his contemporaries were more than a little hesitant to do. On that note, we're going to leave Senenmut for the time being, because this episode is running long. But he will be back, for Senenmut's career, while at its peak, is only half completed. There are many more things to talk about, most especially how and why he suddenly seemed to lose it all. Next episode, Senenmut will return as part of Hatshepsut's government between years 10 and 16, when all kinds of great works were being completed in the Nile Valley, and when a great celebration took place to proclaim the splendour of Hatshepsut's rule, and of her empire. Join us soon for episode 65, Hatshepsut of Millions of Years, 